Hello, everyone. Welcome to From No to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is a special guest, Keelan Cooper. A couple of days ago, we dissected a clip from the popular TV show, The Mandalorian, in which the questions were raised about the droid IG-11, specifically whether he was conscious and autonomous, and what the ethical implications of that might be. Today, we're talking with someone who not only studies learning and memory, but also artificial intelligence. While popular science may be worlds away, the questions it raises are right at our doorstep. All right, Keelan, thanks for coming on the show. Um, Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Hey, yeah. So thank you, Joel, for having me here. I'm excited. Uh, So my name is Keelan Cooper. I am a neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine, um, out on the West Coast. And I'm also the co-founder of Continual AI, which is an artificial intelligence uh, research nonprofit. Um, and, and just in brief, my research generally is more on the neuroscience side and kind of breaks into artificial intelligence every now and then. Um, but generally overarching all that, I'm, I'm really interested in learning and memory. So how our brains can form memories, how they learn over time, how memories interact in the brain and how they link together. Um, and how you can carry that with you over days, weeks, years, lifespan. All right. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, you work on a lot of um, subjects that we talk about obsessively on the show. Um, you want to start by telling us, in its most basic form, um, what is intelligence? Uh, that's one of those big questions in science that you're going to get a different answer for probably anyone you ever you ever ask. I actually have a a list of quotes of people answering that question. Like Stephen Hawking has his like famous quotes, like intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. Um, But I, I come from, and I I think unfortunately a lot of my opinions on, on these topics will kind of fit the same that the big words in brain science will end up usually being a, a bag of a bunch of subtopics that we just kind of generalize over. I, I don't know. I think most people have that that sort of um, opinion. Like, what was it? Like the Einstein quote? It's like, you don't judge a fish's intelligence by its ability to climb a tree or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be species-dependent. It's going to be person-dependent. It'll be field-dependent. Um, but I think intelligence and, you know, like cognition more generally um, is this is this thing that we know humans can do and humans have that most other species or even inanimate machines can't do. Um, I think that's, that's pretty much the safest criteria. And from there you can build up on, you know, what specifics you want. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I remember I got my master's degree in education and, um, I remember, you know, from class to class, there was, uh, people saying, Oh, yeah. You know, Howard Gardner has a theory of intelligence saying there's multiple intelligence and all this different stuff. And then the next class, it was, no, that's debunked. Like, that's not a real thing. <laughs> so, so yeah, the, the jury's definitely a little bit out on how you would um, define that. And I think that you brought up a really good point um, that intelligence is, is species dependent. Um, I've talked about it a couple times on the show. There's a documentary I like on Netflix that... Um, shows what the world looks like through different creatures eyes and mm-hmm. um the scientist who uh is bringing it up is like 
you have to remember, this is just an approximation because essentially you're using a creature's eyes, but you're interpreting it through a human's brain. And that's not how it works in real mm-hmm. life. Um, so obviously this um, sort of spills over into artificial intelligence, right? We're, we're talking about something that is um, um, much different from people or animals or anything else. So um, it's an interesting spot to start. Um, and you seem uniquely qualified to answer this question. What would make intelligence artificial? When we use that term, what what do we mean by that? Are we saying anything that's not human or how are we using it? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good question. And, and jumping back to when you're talking about species, there's like an awesome famous paper, I forget who it's by, but it's it's what is what's it like to be a bat, right? So, you know, trying to, to think about what it's like to, in the case of echolocation for a bat, um, what would it be like to navigate the world through the sense that you know humans really can't comprehend? Um, although there there were a few recent studies about blind humans who could potentially use echolocation. I don't know if you've ever yeah that. yeah I saw that. I don't know how yeah, I don't know how true they are, but if if true, then that's pretty cool that you know we can do it. Um, but yeah, I I, I think it, it kind of hits on these things that yeah big words or, or specific abilities. Um, kind of go into our schema of what these large cognitive terms end up being. Um, jumping back to your last question about, you know, if we wanted to recreate these in a machine and, and do we call them artificial? I personally don't like the term artificial intelligence because I think, I, I think you kind of shoot yourself in the foot from the get-go. Um, for example, you know, when, when IBM develops um, like Watson to play Jeopardy or, or Deep Blue for chess. Um, people always say like, wow, that computer, you know, we, we put the benchmark in the ground and we say, if the AI can do X, it's probably smart or it's probably intelligent. Um, and then obviously somebody goes out, builds the machine that can blow humans out of the water in that task. And then all of a sudden the field goes, Wow. Okay. Yeah, that wasn't so hard. You know, computers could easily do that task. Um, that's not real intelligence. It's not really intelligent to play chess. Or you know, 50 years ago, if you saw that, or I guess later now, 100 years ago, if you saw that, you'd be like, "Wow, that's amazing." Um, so the benchmark's always moving, and I think if what we're trying to build is something that is truly intelligent, when you call it artificial from the get-go, you're not really allowing yourself to believe that whatever it is you're building is real. Um, or, or the, you know, these bag of tricks that we can end up pulling out from each individual AI savant. So a machine that's superhuman at chess, a machine that's superhuman at protein folding, a machine that's superhuman at stock market, whatever it is, these specific tasks that, you know, individually, if you would be an expert chess player, you'd call that expert chess player intelligent in chess. But you build that computer, beats them. Um, if you call it artificial, you're not really giving yourself much room to to allow that to be okay. Well, that's actually, you know, it's not how we solve it, but it is a way that a computer can solve it. Um, so yeah, going back, I I wish we would have used the term synthetic intelligence. I think that's more apt term for what we're building. Um, kind of going to like substrate independent that just because it's not a brain, it's not in neurons, it's in silica, that doesn't mean that it can't be real, so to speak. Um, And even intelligence, I think, is probably, you know, going back to your first question, is probably not 
the right word to use either because it's also one of those ill-defined words that doesn't really mean anything out of the context that it's used in. Um, you know, most people be like, oh, wow, he's really smart. He can do math in his head. It's like, is that really the best way to, to qualify somebody being smart? I mean, that's a, that's a skill that I couldn't do. But um, So I wish, you know, going back to the, the 60s and the Macy's conference and cybernetic days, that it would have been synthetic cognition. Which, you know, even cognition is a harder to define term. But I think that's, that's closer to what people want. Um, cognition being kind of the mirror of the human process that that we have. Um, yeah, but. I think that that's a good term is is the process, right? Because cognition sort of implies a, a process, whereas, like you said, in intelligence is just sort of this uh, abstract kind of concept. In artificial, I think that you you nailed it there. It's 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 sort of an anthropocentric way of. Um, categorizing something that's other than us in that way right so like you were talking about the beginning of the show intelligence is something you know in its abstract uh sort of um you know term exactly. it, it applies you know it applies to all kinds of animals and things um but we're using it in regards to computers um as it only measures up to us right mm -hmm. so do you think if a computer, if you do you think if we got to the point where it, AI could do anything that a human could do, it could, uh, you know, it had cognition in the same way that we do, we still wouldn't call it intelligence. It would still be artificial intelligence because it's it's other than us. I think that that's kind of the 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 purpose of it is putting it into a category. Yeah, and I think I remember back Dan Dennett. I was at one of his talks, and and he said something really good about. I think he's referring more to consciousness, but but it's like the magician's secret, right? It's like when you don't know how it works, it's 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 wow, that's that's amazing, that's impressive. But as soon as you like reveal the the trick of of what it is that that gives right the mechanism underlying it, you go, oh oh yeah, that's easy. I know how that went. Oh, I should I would have known that all the time. That's not that impressive. Um, yeah, and that's that's kind of like Deep Blue um, winning at chess, right? It's that. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, well you know. At first, it seems like they can't do it, and then they do it. And like you said, it's a moving benchmark, this this idea of artificial intelligence. Yeah, and once you and, figure uh, out how it does it, that, oh, all it's doing is just running a search through every possible iteration of chess, and it's just finding the set, the, the, that path through search that optimizes the chances of it winning. Like, oh, yeah. And it's like, do you I mean people think that that's what master chess players have a greater or at least a heightened ability to do that they can quickly run through you know simulations of the chessboard in front of them but just not at the same rate or capacity as as chess would and you know humans also have you know heuristics or what folks like the intuition but right so um you study uh human learning and memory uh, do you think there's other aspects of the mind that are applicable to um ai the development of ai yeah, I mean, I I think that the, that the entire history of of artificial intelligence and neuroscience, I mean, all all of these. Let me put it this way: all these brain science fields, and I'll even include artificial intelligence as one of the brain sciences, um, all kind of grew from the same tree and branch of thought. Um, just I think studied from different different perspectives. Um, you know, neuroscience studies 
human cognition through the realm of the brain, um, psychology through behavior, cognitive science through trying to understand the processes underlying cognition, and artificial intelligence. Like, can we take all of what we learned or even build new methods to solve these same problems that humans do? Um, and so in the case of artificial intelligence and neuroscience, I, I mean, th those two fields have been inextricably linked from the beginning. Um, I mean, even going back to like what you, the grandfather of, of AI, Turing. Turing wanted to emulate, you know, a human mathematician to solve a problem with a machine. Um, he, in his later years, was, you know, quoted in some of his writing as really thinking about these computers as kind of, you know, agents in their own right. Um, von Neumann, in terms of like computer science, his later writings were about the brain. Like his last unfinished work um, was a treatise on neuroscience, and he never finished it, unfortunately. Um, mm. And and even uh, I like to use deep neural networks because they're they're kind of on everyone's mind. If you go back to the 60s and the the impetus of connectionist modeling and and these types of models, they weren't really in. Deep learning wasn't really in the, the, the artificial field back then. Connectionist models were usually psychologists or cognitive scientists, computational neuroscientists, trying to you know, model some of their behavioral results with some sort of you know, applicable model. Um, and it was out of that that, that that the field grew. And then as it grew into you know, modern deep learning, um, you know, businesses, business techniques, statisticians, you know, all of these other kind of fields bled into it and kind of made it more of like a universal function generator where you could apply it to a business use case. You could apply it to supply chain or data science or these other fields just because it's powerful at the prediction or classification or what have you. Um, but I mean, I think a good example of, of what is to come is probably from DeepMind. Um, because they're one of the key examples of, and Demis Haspis, he was the he was a neuroscience PhD at, at UCL doing fMRI before he even transferred to artificial intelligence. But DeepMind has this big thread of integrating neuroscience findings into its artificial intelligence. And it's funny enough, it seems every time they seem to do that, they get a nature paper that goes through all the news reels and becomes the next big thing. Um, you know, they used a hippocampal mechanism that was kind of derived from Hassabis's undergraduate uh, research um, to beat a tart. So episodic replay um, and these sorts of, you know, well-known neuroscience findings um, and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, I think that I think there's a lot. And, and I think more and more artificial intelligence researchers are interested in pulling from neuroscience and you know, cognitive science to to find tricks to do things. The brain solved it already, so it makes sense. <laughs> so that's interesting, right? Um, so the, the history of AI is sort of inextricably linked to neuroscience, and, and a lot of AI systems are, are sort of built on that template. Do you think that that is the most efficacious way of building AI, or do you think that that's just the intuitive way of doing it since that's how our, our brains work? No, I mean, both have worked. So, I mean, if you look at, at like the 80s, the, the what is it, GoFi, good old-fashioned AI, where, thing, where you explicitly program a computer to, to solve, you know, it, this was prior to deep learning and machine learning really being big. And so you explicitly program the task. 
Um, so say you have like a sort task or a search task, which you know back then would be pretty impressive if you could have an AI to do these things. Um, you would explicitly give the the computer instructions to do it with minimal learning involved, um, which is not really at all how how we solve these problems. And I I think it's it's interesting if you you take a step back from this and you kind of look at the the spectrum of um, artificial intelligence and and I'll even throw in computational neuroscience in there, you kind of have this spectrum of if I have a task, so let's say chess, um, you could probably build an AI to solve it really close to how a human would, pulling in all the biological, physical properties that, that we know of today to solve that task. You could also probably solve chess with mechanisms that are not even near what humans would do, that only a computer would do. Um, force search through every possibility or something and you know on those two ends of of the extreme you know you have for every every ai algorithm that exists measured by a function of how close is it to how humans or animals would solve whatever given task you're trying to solve um so i mean i i think it's probably going to be task dependent which one's better um Obviously, in a memory task, I would trust a computer more than I would trust a person. You have eidetic, one-to-one, every bit is encoded into memory. Memory, But, you know, there's other tasks that I think how the human brain solved it was optimized for that kind of task. And so I think it's task-dependent. You can solve them both ways. Um, but the specifics of the solution will kind of dictate what advantages, what pros or cons um, you have at your, your disposal to, to complete that task whatever it is you're trying to solve in AI. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I was thinking to myself, you know, that if, if it was based on the human brain, you'd think at some point, if, if the technology got um, advanced enough, it, it would make sense to branch out beyond that. But it's, it sounds like what you, from what you're saying, they already do in some regards, but in some regards, just good old fashioned human thinking is sort of better at solving a problem than yeah. going through a brute force kind of AI. Um, and it depends. Like there, there are some papers now that are trying. So there was one big one that that trained a neural network. I think it was to solve like an image classification problem, or whatever. And they designed their their neural network to do it. And the trick in that paper was they constrained the architecture and the function of the neural network to be as close as it could be to a, someone in an MRI scanner solving the same task. And their conclusion was that when you constrain a neural network to mimic how, you know, the, the specifics of the human brain that they had encompassed, you got far better results. Um, is that going to work for every application? Probably not. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, it's reasonable to assume that in some cases, the brain has, has you know, figured something out that is useful. Like, oh, you should use sparse representations rather than dense representations because you're going to improve your storage costs and you're going to minimize interference between representations. Okay, that's probably reasonable. We should probably use that. But other things that the brain does might not be optimized for the task. So I think it'll depend. Gotcha. So uh, what are some other key differences between how a human brain and an AI system work? So you've talked about, you know, there's some, <laughs> yeah, so there's some, sometimes they constrain the AI to act like a human brain. When they're not doing that, um, what sort of things are they doing? You, we've talked about with like um, 
you know, deep blue, like going just going through all of the possible calculations for a chess game or something. Um, what are some other ways that AI solve problems that a, a human brain wouldn't be capable of doing? I mean, certainly scale uh, and speed. So in, in most cases, if, if you want to scale to huge problems and you want really, you know, a quick ability to do it, you need a computer. I mean, computers are infinitely fast. Uh, infinite is a harsh word to use. Um, computers are far faster than a human brain is. Like, it, it takes the order of milliseconds for uh, information to conduct through through synapse, but it takes nanoseconds through transistor. Um, so there's certainly a speed trade-off, and probably in most cases an ac accuracy trade-off too. Um, like these are fuzzy, stochastic um, little com com computers we have in our heads, where you know a transistor is pretty on point. I mean, you know, there's some variation, but it's far more, you know it's far more accurate in terms of those at that level of computation. Um, I mean, you couldn't have a Google in your brain. Your, your brain might work, you know, be able to search through vast quantities at whatever much information you have in your head. But I would be willing to argue whatever, if you could possibly quantify that, it would probably be less than Google's search index, which is spread over, you know, huge server farms in multiple countries across oceans. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, scale is probably a big one. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm thinking about something real quick. Um, while you you brought up memory, um, which makes sense, you know, a computer has a an eidetic memory. You know, essentially, uh, you know, it's not going to forget anything, right? Whereas Depending humans, it, but yeah, right, yeah, yeah, but humans can. Um, do you think uh, where's AI in terms of? I remember a few years ago, uh, Microsoft had an AI. They released it. Um, it, it got kind of trolled on the internet and people turned it into a racist, right? Um, yeah. so this is that aspect of, of learning where it's, it's learning something and it's keying in on the wrong things. Does AI have the ability to, um, are we, or are we getting to a point where it can kind of sort through those memories and, and relearn and, and kind of erase some of those things the way a human can, you know, if you're, if you're a human, right, you can sort of like over time, you can learn new patterns of behavior that that erase old ones um does AI, is AI have that capability with memories that's already established yeah i mean depending on on the algorithm but i think in that case uh, i think it was tay was what Microsoft yeah. called it um yeah but uh i i think in that case it was less a memory problem or even a relearning problem as much as it would be a a control problem or, or even like a decision-making problem. Um, like humans, us, especially humans relative to most animals, we, a huge disproportionate chunk of our brain is dedicated to doing nothing else but sending inhibitory projections back to the rest of the brain that basically tell that brain region to shut up. That, that's the main, you know, if you look at the prefrontal cortex, most of its projections are inhibitory axons going to the rest of the brain that just hush the the other brain regions town and you might think why is that useful um because you know humans are impulsive creatures we all have these you know thoughts that we want and the prefrontal cortex there has learned to just Shh, no 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 not now don't do that 
Um, that's not, you know, that won't complete your goals. It might feel good in the moment, but let's not do that. Let's not, you know, take this drug now because down the line, it, it might not, you, you could ruin your life or so on and so forth. Um, so, I, yeah, I think in terms of Tay, you know, it's a, Tay was, I, I don't know the architecture underlying it, but I assume it wasn't that sophisticated in, in what it really, you know, it's probably just a language, you know, a simple language, no, probably not simple, but. It's mediocrely complex language AI. Impressive in that, you know, that you could just soak up all the information that people were tweeting at it. Um, but if all you have in that neural network stack is just a, a language model that's learning, you know, how they work, they're, they're learning the statistics of, you know, word probabilities. So like if I say, like uh, when you're typing on your phone and you have autocorrect, most of those are either an AI or a hidden Markov model that's just learning the probabilities between words and saying if I am saying the cat and the there's a high probability the next word will be cat just because of the statistics of language. Um, most of those models, up until some more recent ones, don't really have like goal directedness, so they they don't have this kind of like I want to use speech to to do this, um, and they certainly don't have. I want to say this, but this is bad because X, therefore I will not say this, um, as humans do, right? Like we, we learn pretty at a young age, you don't do these things because you'll have a bad outcome. Tate didn't learn that. Um, but I guarantee you, you know, now almost every big AI company has huge divisions and allocating a large amount of capital towards avoiding that problem to, to avoid, um, another example would be like Google images. Um, when they when they unveiled their Google image search, it was awesome. It was breathtaking that you could just search a thousand photos in your camera roll for cat and it would just automatically pull up the ones for cat. Awesome. Until some people went through and typed in the word gorilla and their black friends came up with that. And that's awful. You do not want that to be associated with your algorithm. But that's just for whatever reason, the AI pulled those features and that's what it learned. And so, you know, you have to go back through and explicitly tell the AI not to do those things or think of cleverer strategies to avoid those. Um, usually having biased data is a, is a big one. Um, but yeah, it, it just takes some doing. So, um, so I'm how do uh, how do like AI programmers how do you how do you um, uh, achieve that? Are, you're not learning it the same way that a human would, right? I, if I'm distinguishing between you know different things, um, do you have to do more work on the end of the AI scientists? I mean, yeah, the, yeah, it's getting a bit out of my area in terms of. I, I, I'm sure there's probably two ways that people are approaching it from a research standpoint of you know how how could we implicitly teach these these algorithms these networks to behave in a more equitable um uh reasonable um not hostile or offensive way um, is there a way that we can implicitly break that into how they're training to avoid these kind of maladaptive outcomes I, I, on the research sphere i'm sure that that's you know the big arching question that a lot of ethics ai researchers are looking into um, but probably if I'm a corporation and I'm releasing like Google image search and I'm releasing a, a you know, an actual AI application, a tool, um, I'm going to have teams that are going to validate it and search and test it and look for those things. And they probably bake in explicitly 
um, rules and, and methods to, to avoid those things. Um, just because, you know, in that case, it's code. It, it's, it's a software product. So you're going to do whatever you can to avoid those explicitly. Um, I don't know. I don't know how Google is actually handing it, but I would guess that that, that would be what they would do. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, let's head in. Let's ask some formative questions. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of AI? Yeah, I mean, I, I would think that like the origins of AI probably date back to the origins of the computer themselves, um, or, or the origins of automata. Um, and even so, Charles Babbage is usually you know the first person to think of like a, the differential calculator to to build a machine that can do this once human feat of a mental com computation. You know, prior to that, again, calculators are ubiquitous now. I have four on my phone and two on my laptop and one old TI-86, right? But back then, a mathematician would be some reverent, high intelligence person and. To come up and say, I have a machine that can solve differential equations, that would be, you know, encapsulating this high intellectual ability. Um, and even prior to that, there's there's awesome work on in within the history of computation, like back in uh, early France of like these automata, so these machines that can, um, and it's actually fun if you're ever just bored on an afternoon to just type in like automata. Um, France or these things, they have these awesome videos of these very ornately designed machines. Um, there's one where it looks like a human, it's, it's like a robot, um, and it can write. Uh, it can be programmed to write. Um, I wow. forget what it's writing, but you know, it can do these things. Um, yeah, this is really interesting. I'll, I, I don't mean to cut you off. I'll let you keep no, going no. here in a minute. But this is something we've talked about in the past. You know, we're primarily a philosophy show and trying to determine um, where the cutoffs are with some of these things, like with intelligence, there was a recent study in psychology um, looking at um, IQ scores, right? And um, you know, there's there's this pervasive sort of feeling among people that uh, people are getting dumber, and it has something to do with technology, right? Um, but what they found is that you know, well, no, just because you could remember a thousand phone numbers before, now you don't know your own doesn't mean that you're any any stupider it just means that you're passing off those tasks to a technology so they found that iq scores over time have not changed people are just a you know it's just as intelligent in that abstract way now as they were back then um but what they're using their intelligence for is different now than it was then and a lot of those memory tasks or um the, the computational tasks that have been taken over by um cell phones um, aren't things that are incorporated into the the human sort of schemas in in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, like you were saying with the uh, you know when you take that back and you look at it that way throughout history, um, yeah, where do you start drawing the line on um, you know when our artificial intelligence, if you're thinking of it as a, a task that's being taken over from humans so that they can focus their energy somewhere else, where where does it begin? It's kind of a, a fascinating question. And I mean, there, I mean, it's like, when does a pile of sand become a heap, right? It's like all of these fields are interconnected. I mean, they all jump back to philosophy at some point, um, branching in different ways. But yeah, and I, I love actually the, the, the question of like, oh, we're going to have all these things. We're going to become so stupid, like the... The characters in Wally who just sit and let the computers do everything for them. 
And my favorite response is, I'm just, read Plato, because Socrates complained and moaned about the same thing, except in their big technology of the time was writing and paper. And he didn't like it because of the same reason you said, oh, if we write everything down, then we're not going to have the capacity to remember anything anymore. He's absolutely right. Back then, you know, people trained themselves um, to be mimnists, to, to remember like the Odyssey, for example. People would remember that entire poem. Um, and it was actually, some people hypothesize that poems were used because it aided memory. It was a mimic device because things rhymed. So you could remember longer pieces of information. But I don't think anyone in their right mind would go back and say, yeah, he's right. I wish we didn't have paper. I, I wish we didn't, we didn't write things down or, or develop language. Ah, yeah, that would have been such a waste of, of, a, of a, no. Um, the fact that I can even tell that story is because, ironically, Plato wrote it down. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the way anytime there's a new technology, that's kind of the um, the old uh, guards reaction to it. Right? Oh, technology, you know, TV is yeah. going to rot your brain. Radio is going to rot your brain. Oh, the, the Internet and now cell phones and everything else. I think where it gets interesting with some technology stuff, right, is um, it seems pretty obvious. OK, well, writing is, is a good thing, right? Mm. Um. What do you think would happen to humanity if like a solar flare hit and knocked out all of our electronics, though? Like, do you, you know, then we have to go back to like the primitive tools. Um, do you think there'd be any kind of gap or you think we'd be able to figure it pretty much figure it out? You know, uh, I'm sure we could figure it out. And actually, there's a lot of really good YouTube channels of people trying to do that, um, of, of building these primitive things. And, you know, there's a lot of anthropologists out there who know the, the ancient methods of building you know greek arches or these things or chiseling stones until they know that pretty well so they would be the first people that we would go to um i think we'd be fine and also we have a great deal of information you know offloaded from from the digital so um there's yeah, actually, there's a lot. to go further there's actually a company that's trying to encrystallize the world's information into it's not it's a form of, of data storage and, and crystals that has a height so but anyway they're trying to ship them to the moon and mars so we <laughs> have like uh it's called arc i think um and they're trying to have like a, a repository i think they have all of wikipedia on there now and put out a satellite or something um so we have that kind of like backup of, of the world's knowledge um that's yeah cool. We're smart. We'll, we would certainly figure it out. Yeah, and there's faster than we did before. Um, yeah, I mean, you see, there's a lot of neuroplasticity even within an individual human. So, I mean, as a species or you know, as a societally, I'm sure that if there was some sort of cataclysmic event, um, we'd be able to 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 get back on our feet. Um, so why don't you keep going? So we've talked. That was kind of a fun tangent on these <laughs> sort of speculative uh, uh, origins of, of AI. Where, why don't you give us like the, the official the official account? Where do they say that it starts and how to kind of progress? Yeah, I mean, again, it really will depend. Um, like I said, like deep learning, for instance, certainly has its roots in like, computational psychology and mathematical psychology and, and trying to develop models to, to, to mimic um, psychological experiments. Um, artificial intelligence itself, um, it, it's a big field. And so 
like early robotics. You have there's the famous robot Shaky, which was one of the first to like navigate through a room and you know laid the groundwork for Roomba and driverless cars and all of these things. Um, Turing is certainly regarded as as the godfather of of computation and probably even the godfather of, of artificial intelligence, given how close those were. I mean, he he thought about building to program a computer in the same paper as what it would mean if that computer was so intelligent that, that we couldn't tell it wasn't a human. Um, so so they're, they're inexplicably linked. Um, I, I think, I personally think, and I'm, I'm, maybe some people will debate it, um, but, but I think really the whole field of computer science um, is, is in a vein for artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is probably the, the, the grand goal of why we, we have computer science and why it's so pervasive. We want to build really smart technologies um, I, as evidence in Turing. But, but I think along the way, you know, people are like, well, hey, we can use these computers to do a heck of a lot more than just what humans do. I mean, we can run the stock market and fly a plane and you name it. We can do it. We can tweet. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we built something that was useful and we just you know, appropriated it into every application that we could find it to be useful. But artificial intelligence, I think, has remained. Um, remained in different flavors and different approaches from a roboticist to someone who's, you know, a good old fashioned AI programmer giving explicit rule based logic to solve a problem um, to the, the modern deep learning revolution in, in nowadays. Um, yeah. And within that, there, there are key benchmarks and signposts. You know, certainly Kasparov was a big win for AI. Certainly, YouTube's deep learning to to find cats from videos was, you know, what kind of sparked this modern deep learning revolution we're in now. Um, all of DeepMind's stuff that that are really showing the boundaries that deep neural networks can go. Um, and you know, who knows what the future will be? There's people looking at quantum computing and artificial intelligence, and what what will quantum computers allow us to do that traditional computing wouldn't do? do further, who knows? Um, but, but yeah, it's a long story. So what are what are sort of some of the chapters in AI's history? Like how has it progressed? So I'm certain that the AI that we have today and how it accomplishes tasks, AI in history probably didn't accomplish tasks those same ways, right? So what were like some of the original programmings and, and how things have gone now? Yeah, I, I mean, like I was saying, so... In computer science, early computer science was kind of regarded as, as artificial intelligence, things that we wouldn't really think of that impressive now. Um, so there's a there's a very famous programming language called LISP um, early in the day. Uh, and it was you know, regarded as being, wow, that, that's impressive that you can get a computer to sort through these things or, or can search through text or, or these, kind of, you know, search in some regards, was an artificial intelligence, you know, key benchmark, like tree search. But we really don't think of like brute force search in a computer today as being that kind of that artificial intelligence flavor. Now it's just, you know, every computer science 101 major learns breadth first search and depth first search and all of these different search algorithms. That Back in the day, that would be artificial intelligence to do. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, the further you go back, the more I think AI looks like computer science. Um, our perception of it is just we're, we're so used to it now that we don't really think of it that way. Um, same with robotics. Robotics, early robotics was certainly artificial intelligence, but now it's just, you know, well, it's just a robot. It can just drive around. It's a Roomba. You know, is it yeah. really that smart or is it just a robot? Yeah, it's kind of like you said at the beginning of the show, the, like the benchmark's always moving, right? So, um, you know, now I can play chess against the computer on my phone, and I don't think of that as being artificial intelligence, right? But in some regard, you know, there's somebody somewhere along the way, somebody said, oh, well, we have to we have to have an expert level and a medium level and, and you know. And the the computer's gonna have to act a certain way when it plays and do these do yeah. these different. Now you can play chess against an algorithm that learned chess by itself, that that learned that knew nothing about the rules, learned nothing about even the task it was doing. It just knew I need to win. I'm gonna move around until I win. Ooh, that worked. I'm gonna do that again. Oh, I did that again. I won. Um, and just, you know, AlphaGo Zero is what I'm talking about. And it can play itself and it can blow every other artificial intelligence technique out of the water. The ones that use, you know, like like Deep Blue did, it, it had a whole host of heuristics. Like little, like, you should prioritize your queen over a pawn. So I'm going to value this more in my search. Or I want to maximize my knight. To do, right, right. All of these, you know, they, they consulted with chess experts about to, to do these, to build these really complex heuristics to kind of minimize that search cost. Um, AlphaGo Zero knows none of these. It knows nothing about anything. You could just show it pixels on a screen and give it a reward function, and eventually it would play chess better than anything we've ever built that could play chess ever, period. Um, barring, actually, it's funny, they have these competitions now, and the best chess player is a human and an expert chess player and a computer uh, usually ends up being the best, which is, you know, we're, we still add something. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but to me, that's intelligent, right? Like, like that would be really smart to, to, to build, right? Wow, like, I learned nothing. It's like, but once you know how it works, it's really not that impressive. It's just... Yeah. Uh, yeah, starting from a blank slate, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's funny. I, we talk about it a lot on the show, you know, philosophy and, and, and human thought. It, it all boils down to language and categories and things. And these categories are always changing, right? Things that used to be philosophy are now science. And, um, you know, the, this signpost of philosophy and what it encompasses is always moving. And it's the same thing with artificial intelligence, right? Something that used to be artificial intelligence just kind of falls into the realm of computer science and the benchmark is kind of moving forward always. Um, let's let's ask some speculative questions as we, we're heading into the, the back end of the show. Um, do you believe AI will solve the biggest problems and, and mysteries facing us like climate change or the origins of the universe or some of these things? I mean... Today, AI is really just a tool, right? It, it's a smart tool, it's a good tool, but it's a tool. Um, so is it really the AI solving these problems? No, it, it's still us. Um, you know, maybe one day, and, and people are actually trying to build like AI scientists and, 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 and artificial intelligence programs that can design their own experiments, which is really to, interesting to think about where they you know, have that full feedback loop where they form their own hypotheses, they test their hypotheses, they see the results, and then they form a new hypothesis. And, you know, the scientific me method is programmed into them. 
Um, wow. That's interesting. That's awesome. Um, but who knows? Um, there was also a, a big paper the other day that that just showed a, a deep network, the the orbits of planets. And from just the, the vision of the, the orbits of planets, it derived Newton's laws. Um, and they say, like, look at that. We have an AI Newton sitting sitting there in our, our computer. But is, is it really going to solve it? I, I don't know. I, I think of them today still as being tools. And maybe that's like an agency problem and, and so on and so forth. I, mean, I think they'll give us the ability to do things we've never done before. But so did the telescope. So. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, that point that you just said about chess—that the the best outcome tends to be a human matched with an AI, right? Mm-hmm. And I think people who have had uh, experience with some of these, um, like the deep the deep learning AIs and stuff. Um, I remember playing um, AI Dungeon when it first came out, and then um, I didn't play it for a long time. Then a while back, I came back to it. And um, it's gotten a lot better, but like it'll still do some things and you're like, "Mm, okay, all right, you know. So, yeah, I think that that's a good point. You know, it's 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 like anything else. People try to um, demonize social media or, you know, whatever the case may be. It's all tools. Right. And I think that there was just recently they had an AI that they they uploaded a bunch of information to and then they started asking it questions about the ethics of ai you know and they were and basically what it what it spat back out at him was hey listen i'm just a tool like you know it depends on how you how you program me how you use oh i thought there was one that actually said like ai is evil like the ai itself said ai is bad and so obviously the press ate that up oh yeah look even the artificial intelligence or the open ai algorithm there's an ai that said that uh um shut me off I'm too dangerous. Shut me off, or, or, or something like that. And, and so you're like, yeah. and and this probably comes back to the the origins of how it how it learns things, right? The 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 program itself. Um, and yeah, and it's interesting how what what sort of things they come up with. But in, in the end, they're just kind of tools, right? Mm. So what do you think? What do you think about the the dystopian theories of of AI's future? Do you think that there's any any credence to them, um, or what do you think? Only as far as Socrates was right about writing, right? Like, we certainly are going to lo- like. There will be change. Um, so I think in the near term, there's certainly going to be people's jobs being taken away by AI. That's awful. Um, I, I mean, it's it's not the first time this has happened. Um, it's happened throughout history. But I think it's certainly you know a big enough problem and an economic problem and there certainly are people way more qualified than me thinking about this problem in ways to to solve how we're going to navigate that transition when an ai can do your job better cheaper faster than you can um and so yeah there's going to be like those near-term problems which i I think are far more more reasonable to to consider and i think the problem of bias is certainly huge Um, you know, if if your job is determined, if you're hired by an algorithm and that algorithm is implicitly biased, that's not kind of that is a dystopian future, right? Like you don't you want it to be an equitable, you want it to be a reasonable, however far we can do that um, um, algorithm. And I mean, even now, like driverless cars, 
you're seeing kind of these 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 questions posed. Uh, I forget what company it was, but one of the the CEOs was heavily criticized because he came out and said um, the, the trolley problem, right? The famous like, should we prioritize one person versus multiple? Um, driverless cars are now making that old problem very real. Um, and the CEO of the company came out and explicitly said, when faced with the situation where the driverless car has to choose between the passenger's safety within the car or pedestrian safety, I don't know, there, you could probably think up a few situations where that could be the case, right? Like if you avoid a kid by going off a bridge or something, I don't know, it's going to happen. Um, he was criticized because he said that our cars and our AI programming will prioritize the driver and the passenger over the pedestrian. Makes sense if you're selling cars, you don't want it's bad marketing probably to come out and say, when faced with a you know trolley problem like decision, our cars will favor the pedestrian. But please buy it, right? But you know you have two years out of undergraduate programmers programming things and faced with heavily philosophical ethical issues of if i have to pull the switch and go left or right and one of both of those outcomes are bad which one should i prioritize um you you have to code it in in some way shape or form um and so yeah i mean again whole huge number of people working on these problems there's ethics boards ethics advisors um ethics is now trying to be taught in all computer science courses um but but it's things like that and that transition and that change to try and build that a future that we think you know what would be the best outcome what are the regulations that we need to put in place to to determine how to navigate these really really hairy problems not just in driverless cars or in across all of artificial intelligence because in some way shape or form you're going to have these kind of problems pop up wherever you look yeah so i i guess the the best way of putting it is those dystopian theories of the future are now um, right yeah yeah you know it's basically it it happens at sort of the inception of of the artificial intelligence in the way that it's developed and, and those sorts of things so you you can't rule it out because i guess if it was if it was done wrong it could happen but what you're saying is we have lots of people who are aware of that problem and are working on ways to uh, try to now, avoid it. I'll say two things. How well they, they will solve it, time will tell. And should we put more researches and, and effort and ultimately money and political power into these problems? Probably we probably should. I mean, I don't really work in that, but, you know, it's probably a good idea, too. Um so yeah, I, I I don't think I'm in a position to to judge those issues, but I certainly can tell you that they're there and people are trying to work on them to whatever degree. Um, but let me you know let me not just make it sound like it's also bad. I am, am overly optimistic. Why I love artificial intelligence so much and you know brain science and neuroscience because. I think it will be the thing that really will have a huge industrial revolution size scale on how the economy and the world and science and you know all the activities humans are involved in we are now building machines that can can start to break into those those areas i don't know who said the quote but the quote was if industrial revolution was a mechanistic revolution for the body so you know labor uh, artificial intelligence will be the revolution for the mind and 
think about all of the things that that will solve and all of the things that that can do. All of the reasons why artificial intelligence has always been kind of the grand goal of computer science, and I would even argue brain science and psychology, because if you can build that thing, you probably know quite a bit about it, and we'll know quite a bit about it ourselves once we could build that kind of grand artificial intelligence moonshot. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, do, do you see AI and robotics integrating in a science fiction-esque way someday? Do you think that it's going to get to that point? I mean, you've, have you seen Boston Dynamics videos? Pretty, a robot can do a backflip. That's that's pretty insane. Yeah, that was interesting. I watched the one where they uh, they taught how to dance. Yeah. And it was funny because despite not not looking like a human, something about just watching it move, it was like, this is this is a little weird. <laughs> you know, this is kind of... I, I think the convincing. dog is really eerie in, in that the ability to move. Um, and I think it's kind of cool. There's... There's this really well-known finding in, in robotics design. It's called the Uncanny Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's when you're designing a robot and how it looks, um, you want it to look – so it's kind of this U-shaped curve where the, the axis is how close to, to something real, biological, does it look. And if it looks so completely different and not real or something biological that we know, like ourselves or an animal, um, it's fine. Um, but as it gets closer and closer, it starts to hit this U-shape where you have this middle ground where it looks really similar to us or really similar to something real. And we do not like that. That's why so many people, because like Boston Dynamics dog looks so much like a dog and it doesn't really have some other things to distinguish it. A lot of people get really irked out so much so that, you know, Netflix Black Mirror created a whole episode about those dogs if they turned out to be really bad. Um, so you want them to be close but not not too close that's why you know a lot of things have big big eyes and and things to make them deviate a little bit but anyway it's kind of cool yeah no i I think that that's definitely relevant to the question i guess because what i'm asking is do you think we'll ever bridge that gap do you think that we'll ever get so close to human in in a robotics and ai way that there is you you get across that uncanny feeling because i mean i've watched i have seen some of them and no matter how real they get, I still have that weird feeling like, oh, this is yeah. a little bit strange. Do you think there will ever be a commonplace thing for it, where AI and robotics are integrated like that? I mean, not even in robot. Like if you've ever been to like a wax museum or seen like a wax sculpture, which I would argue is probably like the, the most realistic of a human. You know, it can't move much yet. But, you know, I mean, Hollywood has a million dollar industry on developing you know, human looking things. And, and I think I've seen some that are really good. Um, and, and some recent, I forget what company it was. I think it was Facebook. Yeah, it was Facebook when they were unveiling like the metaverse stuff. They showed some of their their generative artificial intelligence program to show like a picture of a human face. And they're really good. Um, like you can, there's a website too of, uh, he's a grad student who, who does this kind of generative modeling uh, and you trained a network to generate human faces that aren't real. And I think it's like this face is not real.com or something along those lines. And you scroll through and you would not know that those aren't real photographs of real people. Yeah. I remember reading an article one time and um, it was, it was um, asking you to pick out between real, which, what did you say these faces are real and fake? Mm-hmm. And um, 
they at the end they gave you some some telltale signs oh if you look at the pupils or if you do this sort of thing but for the most part if you're looking at it casually or you don't know what to look for yeah that's pretty pretty convincing um i i mentioned in the intro that we uh the last episode we did was was based off a scene in the mandalorian and in this season um they have luke skywalker in it and not only is he visually um computer generated um, but his voice is actually computer generated based off mm-hmm. of Mark Hamill, Hamill's voice when he was younger. Uh, and um, again, it's one of those things where people go, oh, you know, it's and you know, I wish they just get a real actor, this sort of thing. Um, but if you're just sort of watching, you know, you can go, oh, something seems a little weird, but it it doesn't. It's not like it was a few years ago where you'd go, oh, this is totally fake. No, it's started. It's getting closer. You know, it seems like probably five, 10, 15 years, maybe mm-hmm. there might come a point where it is. It's very convincing, you know, to the point where you, you can't tell. And Fast and the Furious, I think, was one of the, the first movies like that to make that kind of buzz um, because the actor had died. And so they, they generated his face and voice it's just for like the short last scene. Um and you know as a proof of concept years ago and the the most recent star wars movies i think did that with um leia right for her age yeah. they generated yep. her age back um so yeah it's coming and it's getting good it's getting <laughs> it's getting close in in pictures and you know short clips i think you know as you go up longer videos and it, it's easier to tell but that's only that's a, that's a function of time that's not a function of can we do it um, right yeah i think of that i think of that ai dungeon again right like when i when i first started playing um you'd get like two or three prompts in and then it would do something crazy you know now it's to the point where it'll stick with you and give you a pretty cohesive story and then maybe 10 15 prompts in it does something weird you know mm-hmm. and so yeah i think like you're saying it's a you know it's a function of time eventually there'll there'll come a point where it it it, it configures it out all right last question um when do you think we should start discussing or do should we start discussing ethical considerations on behalf of AI systems? Um, do you think there would ever come a point where that would we, we talk about ethics in terms of how AI systems, uh, uh, you know, impact human beings? I think there would ever come a point where we'd have to discuss ethical implications of turning off an AI. I think we already are. Um I don't think seriously, because I don't think that's really a serious problem now. But what was it? Uh, I think Saudi Arabia, I could be wrong. Um, granted personhood, was like the first country to grant personhood to to some, uh, the Sophia was the robot's name, um, which certainly fits into that uncanny valley, by the way. Very irking of a... But I don't know. I think it's mostly symbolic and to show they're thinking in that direction. Um, but I think there will certainly, yeah, as they become closer to us, I think those those two questions are very correlated. That as as AI gets better and it gets smarter, um, the the push of you know, we built something that that's more than just a machine. I, 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 not now, but down the road. And Hollywood certainly knows the science fiction writers, and I'm sure philosophers have have known this. But but I think I think there's going to be a correlation there. Um, yeah, I remember um, one of the one of the things I remember seeing when I was younger was um, 
2001 a space odyssey when he's turning off hail 9000 and thinking like oh wow this you know i'm kind of this makes me kind of sad you know um so and that it's an interesting question you being somebody who studies both neuroscience and ai right do you think that there these things could become conscious do you think that that's a possibility not the things we have now i mean maybe i it's easy to be true so there's a lot of really good studies that there's really good studies that show um they, they put an undergraduate in a room and they sat participants down and the undergraduate typed in sentences to the participants just to you know to the turing test and the participants were sent you know questioned do you think this is a human or a computer um it was a human behind, but just to see what they would say. Most of them, some of them said it was a computer, some of them said it was a human. But of the ones that said it was a computer, even when they were told and shown and shook hands with the undergraduate who was typing those sentences to them, did not believe that they were the one who was typing the sentences for whatever reason. Um, it's been a while since I read this, but it's kind of the, one of those things that like, like it, it, and it, it fits into this, this grand, this big thing that humans really want to believe that AI systems are in some cases better than they are. Like, like if you can polish the output well, um, people really don't care that much about how it works. They'll, they'll believe that, that it's, you know, probably smarter than it is, um, it's that magician's trick. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. That, that, that they, they do. Um, so in, in terms of scientists and AI researchers who know very well that these things are stupid, um, I mean, there's no other way to, to go around it. They can do some tasks really, really well. But, you know, a two-year-old child is infinitely more intelligent. And I am comfortable saying that than most AI systems we have now. Um but, you know, there's going to be this perception of these things. In some cases, it might. And because, my point was, because of that, even if it's not that intelligent, there could be a portion of the population who, who might not agree and might want to, to push that, that ethical protection over machines sooner than, I don't know, what criteria we should use. But, but then maybe even the experts would, would say um is is reasonable um you know there could be like a safety concern if if for whatever reason it's you know collecting stamps and there's an ai thought experiment where you develop a you give a ai goal function to collect stamps and it maximizes that to the point where it grinds down the human pop literally in, in the, the paper grinds down the human population because it can reuse the carbon from humans to, to produce stamps right like like these things that if you give ai a goal function without constraints it will just go off on its merry way if it's super intelligent it would have the ability to go on its merry way and consume the universe to build carbon to make stamps uh, read the paper but but that's the punchline um so yeah, I think short of explicit fears or like, oh, this thing's going to actually cause some major issues, we need to shut it down from a safety standpoint. Um, there's going to be a group of people who think like, oh, these things are really smart and conscious and should be a scribe person. People already think that now with what we have now. So 
Um, there's people, big AI researchers recently who had a lot of pushback because he said that some of the language models we have now, he thinks they're conscious. I, he got a lot of pushback probably for a reason, but people are saying that now, let alone 10 years with whatever those things are going to do then. So, so do you think in that, in that distant future, I mean, it, it would have to be a totally different way of um, implementing AI that would would get it to that point, right? You're, so what you're saying is with, with the AI that we have now and the way that we implement it, there's no threat of it really becoming conscious or becoming something that we have to ethically um, uh, stick up for, right? I, I think – I don't think we have to stick up for it yet in terms of it having agency, or even personhood. I mean, like I said, like these are really fancy statistical tools. And you can make the argument that humans are too, that the, the, the whole brain, it's the whole thing that human brains do is maximize some sort of statistical prediction. And, you know, all of consciousness is just some in its bag of tricks that that kind of veil over that and as something that we perceive as being more. Um, which could be the case, you know, as AI gets better, we might realize that humans aren't that, as we have with pretty much every, you know, throughout the history of science, Earth isn't the center of the universe. Animals can do a lot of things better than humans can. Um, you know, humans weren't explicitly placed here to, to do these things. So, I don't know, we, we might realize that the human brain really isn't that impressive as we learn yeah, we, more. Yeah, I think we... I think we run into the same problem with consciousness as we do with intelligence, right? It's this sort of amorphous, um, abstract concept, and um, we we like to be anthropocentric around it. We like to think we're the only ones with consciousness. Well, no, animals have some form of consciousness. It's just not the same as people. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps sometime in the future, AI could have some kind of consciousness, but it, it might not be on the same level as people. I mean, panpsychics think the rock has a minimal level of like every atom is ascribed some some consciousness per, you know proton i don't know it depends on who you talk to they all have their own different theories of how that could possibly work um but you know maybe um, i don't subscribe to panpsychism but I, I i think that animals do have some some form well, let me go back my personal view of consciousness is that it is probably, like I was saying at the very beginning with intelligence, it's this catch-all bag of, of different cognitive things that we kind of know what they are, but but not really, right? Like, you know, my consciousness of color is, is kind of a different conversation than um, my feeling of agency um, or or my, my sense of self. Is my sense of self or whatever mechanism gives me this sense of self um the same type of conversation is the fact that i see red as red and not green both are both are discussions people have had in consciousness and and, you know philosophy of mind but i especially from a neuroscience perspective those are two very different um, you know, mechanisms and, and you could go on and on throughout the list of like all the the you know cognitive and behavioral and intelligent aspects that you would ascribe to something being consciousness. And I think as you like go through and start listing those and trying to, to think about them, you realize that there's you know, different groups and categories and 
and they all are derived from different brain regions in some cases, or the coordination of brain regions, or the coordination of these things. Um, and I, I think personally, if you think of consciousness and probably even intelligence as these kind of bags of a lot of cognitive tricks and tools and abilities, um, different brain regions involved with these things, if you look at it kind of like that as you know, you're selecting from a bunch of different things. It's easier to start thinking about like animals having consciousness, for example, right? Like um, if, if bats have consciousness, it involves echolocation in some way, probably in the same way that our consciousness involves color in some way. Um, but they have that echolocation ability. We have, we don't have that ability. So are they in some way more conscious than us because they, they can perceive a new sensory aspect of the world? Uh, but they're less consciousness than us because they're not as intelligent and don't have this developed sense of agency, right? Like those kind of questions, I think, can start to be parsed when you think of it as this kind of toolistic, it's not a word, but this bag of tools approach because that's how the brain is built. Um, and that's, I'm yeah, not a deal. No, that, I think that <laughs> I think it's the brain yeah. gives consciousness. So. I, that's an excellent explanation of of consciousness, and it's really it could be a whole its whole episode, right? Talking about how these how these things work. All right, Keelan, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation, and uh, until next time, keep pondering.